Father in heaven, we're grateful for this time we can spend together. We pray that the Spirit of God would be given to us for understanding, for insight, for discernment, and for the sweet peace that only comes when we're in the presence of Jesus. So we ask your blessing now. Arouse our hearts to want to serve you more faithfully and more fully. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, the future of Adventism, the Bible or culture. And we've talked over the course of this uh, seminar about how culture, from both uh, worldly culture to Christian culture, has affected and has uh, tried to make inroads into the thinking of Seventh-day Adventists. And we talked about the uh, future of Adventist biblical interpretation and how we have to be careful to use time-honored methods of interpretation, the same method that we use to come to the truth about the Sabbath and the state of the dead, and salvation needs to be applied to everything that we do, uh, or else we get into trouble. We talked about the future of the Adventist view of the everlasting gospel and how in our history we have experiences where the Christian culture and its desire to uh, brand Adventism sometimes as some sort of cult uh, and, and the great reproach that comes from having to bear that has caused Adventists through history to try to you know, reach out uh, a friendly hand and there's no problem with a friendly hand as long as it doesn't let go of the principles of Adventism, which at times we have done to some degree or another. And so we, uh, we talked about the need to make sure we understand that justification, our title to heaven, and sanctification, our fitness for heaven, are never separated because the two are both gained through only one means, faith. So if you have faith, then you have justification and you have the process of sanctification. And if you don't have faith, then you don't have either. And so it's important that we maintain those two together and understand that as Seventh-day Adventists, we have always understood that Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary has led us to the need for the development of character and preparation for what's happening and what's coming at the end of time. And this is what the Ten Virgins is all about, is making sure that we are in the process of developing character, that wrestling with God and the Holy Spirit and the development of character is what is going to be needed and what we won't have if we're like the five foolish uh, virgins. So, we talked about that and then about how one of the means by which God works to develop character is through the expression of biblical Adventist lifestyle. These different things that we do that seem to be a little bit distinct from much of Christianity have as their primary purpose the development of a Christian character. And so we talked about things like tithe. Well, what's the purpose of tithe? Well, to a great degree, it is the development of honesty and integrity in an individual and roots out selfishness. Or the same with could be spoken of offerings, which, which speaks of benevolence and, and giving because God is a giver. He gave His only begotten Son. We talked about humility and Christian modesty being connected to each other. And humility is a character trait that God is wanting to develop. We talked about the need for purity and how purity is connected to what we do with, with uh, the world and, and trying to avoid things that would bring our minds into the gutter. All of these things that relate to our Adventist lifestyle 
are not just fringe things, but they're things that are directly connected to the development of a character that we are preparing to meet Jesus in the clouds. Then we talked yesterday about Adventist identity. And as I understand it, Pastor Mark walked through some of those foundational Daniel 8.14, the verse upon which the Seventh-day Adventist church was built, and then showing how that connected with Revelation 10 and the three angels' messages. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in one segment here today as well. But ultimately, the Seventh-day Adventist church is not just a denomination per se. Our very history, our very rise is traced in Scripture. We are prophetically uh, uh, outlined as you walk through Daniel and Revelation. You can see the great disappointment right in Revelation. You can see the final message that has been entrusted to us right there in Revelation. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, we're going to talk just a little bit. I'm going to tack on one point on that a little bit later. Today, we're going to talk about Adventist evangelism, which should look like this. Now, you think that this is just some cute logo. That's what you think. You think this is a cute logo that we've been using here in Michigan and now, uh, you know, being expressed through the General Conference, Sabbath School and Personal Ministries Department, just to kind of, you know, explain things, what have you. No, 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 no. This is actually has a purpose of maintaining a holistic view of evangelism that is under attack within the Seventh-day Adventist church. And you're going to see as we go through uh, what I'm going to share with you today, which are many uh, evangelism myths, that the way to dispel these myths is to embrace wholeheartedly what this is saying about Adventist evangelism. You know what this is saying? Perhaps I should tell you. (laughs) This is the process of what it takes to make a disciple of Christ. Now let me be clear about something. The Great Commission is to make disciples. Now you know that, uh, well maybe you don't, but the Seventh-day Adventist Church has always put into the very heart of our policies, into the heart of the church manual itself, that our focal point and our first priority is evangelistic outreach. It's right there. It's always been there. If you were to look in the church manual where it talks about the work of the church board, right there at the top, every church board should begin. Its first agenda item should have to do with the evangelistic territory and reaching the territory of the church. Did you know that? It's incredible. Whether or not we do it or not is another question, but we have built that way. It's fascinating to me, though, that in recent years, there has been a... uh, What do I want to say? There's been a thinking that our focus on evangelism has detracted from the importance of discipleship. Okay, Our focus on evangelism has detracted from the importance on discipleship. Now, the moment I say that, it begins to already define things in your head. Because when you contrast evangelism and discipleship, which to me are the same thing, okay, but when you contrast them, then you start saying to yourself, okay, evangelism must be talking about public evangelism and baptizing and getting numbers 
And discipleship must be talking about the time to mentor people and that sort of thing. Here's what has happened. In the church manual, if you look now at, from this last GC session, if you look at the great emphasis placed on the work of the board and what have you, there's been some shifting around. It's not bad necessarily, but it's made a strong emphasis on discipleship. You see discipleship listed many, many times. In fact, the very first item on the, on the uh, work of the board is different now, and it focuses more on discipleship. Well, I'm fine with that as long as we are clear on what we mean when we say discipleship. If this is discipleship, then I'm cool. I'm good with that. But if we are referring discipleship to only the nurturing of church members, then I'm not. Nurturing church members is a part of making disciples, but it is not making disciples. And what this does is keeps us from getting confused. Because this is not just... See, discipleship, by the way, you won't find that in the Bible, not that that's a bad thing, but it means that we have to define it. And unfortunately, there are some people who define it different from others. And so the idea of discipleship, sometimes people are like, okay, what does that mean? That's talking about, you know, after baptism, we, we do certain things. And we certainly use, that, use it to mean that as well. But keep in mind that making disciples starts well before baptism and continues after baptism. So the Great Commission is to go and make disciples. And baptism is a part of that, but then there's continuation beyond that. So what we have here is the process of making disciples which I would equate to evangelism. So when someone says, you know, we need to not focus so much on evangelism and focus more on discipleship, you know something's amiss. Like they're thinking that discipleship is not the same as evangelism. Either they think evangelism doesn't include the process of training someone after they're baptized, or they think that discipleship does not include the process of leading someone to be baptized. And both of those would be wrong. Are you following me? Okay, I hope so. Well, the three of you are, and that's all I need, really. The rest of you just get the tape and listen it over and over and over. Okay, so this little guy with the nice, clean, paved, and uh, paved, <laughs> plowed field is talking about preparing the soil, okay? And when we talk about preparing the soil, we're talking about the heart. You remember the parable that Jesus gave of the sower? The sower went forth to sow, right? And when he sowed his seed, what happened to it? Some, tell me about the different places that the seed went. By the wayside, stony ground, that's the wayside, thorns, good soil, okay? Now, when speaking about the seed, Jesus said the seed is the Word of God. The soil, then, is referring to the heart. Okay, So this is talking about preparing the heart to receive the Word of God, which happens through friendship and service, and you know it happens by showing people that you care about them. right? And there's lots of ways that we do that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and there should be lots of ways that we do that personally with people, okay? That is where compassionate service comes in. That's where meeting people's needs comes in. 
that's where ministering to people's physical needs like health ministry comes in, right? All of those things are related to preparing the soil, which makes them an important phase of evangelism. What did I just call it? An important phase of evangelism. Okay. Then comes planting the seed. What did we say the seed was? The Word of God. So how do you plant the Word of God? Give me some examples. Now you're saying Bible studies, but I'm going to make you hold off on that. Let's Literature. Witnessing. Okay, I would think of things like sharing your testimonies. Let's think of planting the seed as the initial, the initial feeding of the Word, okay? So this could happen through, you have a conversation about, you know, you, you know, you've got a friend at work, but suddenly you start turning it spiritual. And you start to talk about God. You start to talk about your church experience. You start to talk about, you're beginning to plant spiritual seeds, okay? Or you share a bit of your testimony with someone. Now you're beginning to plant spiritual seeds. Or you give someone a piece of literature or a DVD, a spiritual DVD to watch. Now you're planting seeds, okay? This is planting. And when you're planting, you're kind of testing the soil to see if it was, you know, prepared enough and if there's going to be some growth. So if that seed begins to cause growth, what does that look like? It looks good. <laughs> Amen. It does. What, how do you know it looks good? Like, what does it look like? Interest, is that what you said? What does interest look like? They ask questions. They ask for something more. Uh, they just seem to want to talk about it. When you see that, you know that the seed has found some good soil, and then you now have to cultivate that interest, right? Because once it starts to grow, you got to pull the weeds, you got to make sure it's getting enough water, enough sunlight, enough all of that. And that takes time, right? Because the time to grow is like slow. And you're watching it and caring for it the whole time. You know what that is? That's cultivating. And that happens through ongoing Bible study. Because you've got to keep feeding them the Word in order for them to continue to grow, right? And as you feed them the Word, they learn more and they continue to grow. They receive, they wrestle, you help lead them to things and, and to decide on things, and they continue to grow and grow and grow. Just like the growth process itself is the longest part of agriculture, the Bible study process is the longest part of the disciple-making process. It's not plowing under? No, no. <laughs> I mean, they use the word cultivate in different ways, but in this particular case, we're talking about the growth, nurturing the growth of the plant. So then there comes a point with a Bible study where, you know, have you ever seen one of those people who does a series of Bible studies and then they think, oh, that was great. I'd like to do another one. And then they say, that was great. I'd like to do another one. And you're like, is this person ever going to come to church? I mean, are they ever going to make a decision? Some point, they need to be called to a decision to keep the Sabbath, to follow after, you know, whatever area of practical instruction the Bible is giving them, and ultimately to make that decision to be baptized and become fully in harmony with the end-time message that God has entrusted and ready to uh, do the next part of the process. This represents the harvesting of decisions for Christ, and including that ultimate decision of baptism. After someone is baptized, 
the harvest needs to be preserved. Now that's tricky because in order to preserve the harvest, you have to train that person to get involved in making other disciples. The whole idea of discipleship or making disciples is that you're making someone who makes someone else. When Jesus uh, mentored his disciples, what was he trying to do? He was trying to develop them so that they will do the same things that he did. That's the whole idea. He'll make you fishers of men. So just like he fished them, he's going to train them how to fish others. And that's what discipleship is all about. So this part has to do with training. Now, as they're doing that, they're going to become further grounded in the church. They need to be integrated into the social life of the church. They need to build friends. They need to have that connection. All that is part of that process, but this is where they transition from being merely consumers to becoming producers. And unless you make them a producer, then evangelism has not done its job. Because our job is to make disciples, and disciples labor for other souls. That's what it looks like. So, this is the process of making disciples. This is the cycle of evangelism, right? And if we would just, you know, hang on to that, we would be just fine. Now, you just hold on to those thoughts, because now I'm going to talk to you about myths of Adventist evangelism. Are you ready for this? Myth number one is that prophecy meetings, like we normally do when we talk about public evangelism, are not Christ-centered. They're not Christ-centered. Now, I need to talk to you about this uh, a little bit, and I'm going to try to not get too in deep on this one, or else I won't have time to cover everything else. But we have a growing problem in terms of how we understand what it means to be Christ-centered. There are many people whose concept of being Christ-centered um, would rule out Christ Himself. For instance, when you think about sermons, the greatest preacher that I have ever encountered would be the Lord Jesus Himself. And there's one particular sermon that we always talk about. In fact, there's a book called Thoughts of the Mount of Blessing that's, that's all about this sermon, and it's been recaptured under the title, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And if you go, you can look and read that sermon for yourself, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if anyone is going to give a Christ-centered sermon, it's going to be Christ. But have you read that thing? Woo! It's smoking, man. He's talking about if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you even look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And you've heard it said, oh, man, I mean, it's blazing. If you read it. And it makes me question the idea that some people have of what it means to be grace-filled and Christ-centered. Now, I'm not uh, by any means suggesting that there doesn't need to be a very clear, tact, and loving approach to everything we do. But I think that we need to just take a step back and evaluate for a minute this concept of what we're talking about when we say 
Christ-centered. Let's talk for a moment about our prophecy meetings. When we do a series of prophecy meetings, where do we usually start? Give me a couple of the first topics. Some of you. Daniel 2 is a common one. And so someone says, oh man, Daniel 2. See, that's just what I'm trying to say. Daniel 2. That's not Christ-centered. That's not just focusing on grace and the gospel. It's right away trying to scare them about you know some big, giant, metal man and whatever. Let me tell you something. Daniel 2 has a distinct purpose of introducing Christ to people. Amen. How is that? Well, when you go through Daniel chapter 2 and you show someone the different symbols and then reveal to them that those symbols reveal actual things that would happen later in history to us, but later in terms of their relation to when the prophecy was given, and they see how history ended up working itself out just like the prophecy said, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and it all looks pretty on target, and then you describe the dividing of Rome shown by the, the uh, feet of iron and clay and the toes, right? There's something that happens to a person. They begin to have some measure of confidence in the Bible that they didn't realize the Bible said all that. They didn't realize the Bible predicted all of that. Now, this is the beautiful thing about the Bible. There is no other sacred writing like the Bible. The Bible is full of prophetic, uh, you know, predictions, okay? Prophecy is not just predictions, that's for sure. But when we're talking about this, it is talking about things that were predicted. And we, today, can look back and show the incredible accuracy of that Bible prophecy. When that happens, as someone is listening, something happens in the mind where they begin to have confidence grow in the Bible. When their confidence begins to grow in the Bible, whether you, whatever you think you know, about now sitting there today, I'm telling you that when you're talking to somebody who's fresh and new and is learning these things for the first time, they already associate the Bible with God. So when you are showing them the truthfulness and the accuracy of the Bible and showing them the Bible's ability to predict something before it happened, thereby revealing the supernatural nature of the Bible, they begin to believe in a supernatural God. And suddenly, the stories of Jesus, and Jesus loves you, and Jesus died for you, and all of those things they've heard over and over and over begin to have a different impact on their mind. In other words, they're not just thinking about Daniel 2. They're not just thinking about history class. They're thinking about Christ. They're thinking about God. They're thinking about the fact that He can read every secret of their soul just like He predicted everything as it would happen. And they're suddenly beginning to get excited. This thing is real. Heaven is real. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And it's found, I find that this happens all the time. You'll be going through a series of prophecy meetings, and it's just Daniel 2 is just, you're just scratching the surface. I mean, you start going into 
Daniel chapter 7 and showing the characteristics of the Antichrist, showing how the, you know, the leopard has four heads and Greece was divided into four regions. I mean, it's like incredible, the accuracy of it. And when they see more and more the accuracy of Bible prophecy, they're more and more drawn out to believe this whole Christianity stuff. The whole package. You understand what I'm saying? And suddenly, in my question and answer box, I start hearing questions that have nothing to do with the metal man. Instead, you know, I did such and such, and will God forgive me? You know, uh, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit, that you can grieve the Holy Spirit? Why are they asking me those questions? That has nothing to do with Bible prophecy. Why are they asking me those questions? Because they have come face to face with the divine Christ. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is our prophetic message has the impact of revealing the divinity of God, the faithfulness of God, the truthfulness of the Bible, and causes people to reckon with their own souls and to have that experience like Peter did on the shore with Jesus where they sat there together and Jesus had to look at him and say, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that. They have to reckon with these things in their life, this personal one-on-one with God that they, that they didn't know for sure that they needed to do until they realized that everything in here was true. Amen. And now, if all of those things are true, so are the steps to salvation. So is confession. So is my need to repent. It's all true. Amen. This is the beauty. This is the beauty of our message and our prophecy meetings are actually, you know, I sort of feel like the Apostle Paul when, you know, he was writing some things in the book of Romans and he said, do we make void then the law through faith? You know, do we avoid Christ through prophecy meetings? Certainly not. On the contrary. On the contrary. This is actually perfectly calculated to introduce people to Christ. That's what the reality is. Check out this statement from Selected Messages, book 2, page 87. The truth for this time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines. But these doctrines are not detached items which mean little. They are united by golden threads, forming a complete whole with Christ as the living center. Do you know what I believe? I don't believe that we have to make the Christ the center of our teaching. I don't think we have to make Christ the center of our doctrines. He is the center. You have to try to get Him out of there. That's the reality of it. And you can do it. You know, you can be so dry and so void of realizing the meaning of our message that you, you know, strip out any, you know, uh, merciful offer to salvation from the, from the message. But that's not how it is. Christ is the living center of every one of our doctrines, and they form a complete whole. I, uh, I'm in the middle of working with some folks here in Michigan on writing a book called the Bible Study Handbook. And we have a chapter in there called Christ the Center. And uh, we dealt with this issue um, that speaks much about... Uh, the fact that Ellen White said that our ministers, the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers should be the cross of Christ. 
what some people want to do is take the cross of Christ and make it the subject of every discourse. But she didn't say that Christ and the sacrifices of Christ would be the subject of every discourse. She said it would be the foundation of every discourse. You know that she didn't mean subject because have you ever read her sermons? Have you ever like looked, gone and found some Ellen White sermons and read them? She preaches on all manner of subjects, right? But, so what does she mean by having that as the foundation of every discourse? What she means is that we are soul winners. Teachers and preachers have at heart a desire to see the salvation of every person. And when you speak, no matter what your topic, your end goal is to see someone connected to Christ and, and, and to turn from sin and to offer them the salvation that Christ is holding out. This has to be in every sermon. A, a message to turn from sin and turn to Christ. And this is what it means to have it at the foundation but it's not the same as having it as a subject. We don't need to make every slide have pictures of Jesus, to make sure we say Jesus in every other sentence. That's not what it's talking about. The idea that we have to do that actually detracts from Christ, and it makes Him less meaningful. We have to be uh, a little bit wiser than that. And I believe that uh, if you were to take a look at any of our doctrines, you would find that, that Christ is right there. What we did was we, we wrote a paragraph on each doctrine. I want you to think of something that we preach in our evangelistic meeting, a topic we preach, and, and give me a topic that you think does not have Christ at the center of it. I'm going to see if we have a, a paragraph on it and we can see if, how it works. Yeah, that does not have Christ at the center. Oh, uh, I don't know that we wrote about hell. So let me see. Oh, we got you. Settle down. <laughs> we have, yeah, there it is. As our all-wise creator, Jesus gave not only the moral law, but also the physical laws of health that provide for our happiness. He gave us the best food for optimum health, an immune system to fight sickness, muscles that thrive with exercise, and fresh air and sunshine to keep the body functioning well. He also warned us of the destructive nature of addictive mind-altering drugs, such as alcohol. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the sick and diseased, providing relief to the suffering and proving that he cares about our physical, mental, and spiritual health. To overcome sinful, health-destroying habits and form good habits in diet and exercise, we must force a form a close bond with Christ, the mighty healer, who alone can give power and self-control as the fruit of His Spirit works in our lives. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Right? I mean, if you're going to have any change in health, you're going to have Christ at the center, or you're not going to be able to do it. All right, anybody else? I'm just curious if there's another one that you've struggled with. Like, how is Christ in the center of that? Hey, if we're not struggling with it, why do I hear it so much? I mean, I hear it all the time. I'm just wondering, is there another? Oh, that one's easy, isn't it? Let's see if I can find that one in here. You're already thinking of how Christ is the center, right? The love of Christ is expressed not only in His mercy towards sinners, but in His justice in dealing with sin. 
This justice has been misrepresented, however, by those who teach that He will torture the wicked throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Yes, He will one day execute justice on evil and sin, but the fires of hell will not burn forever. They will devour the wicked and bring them to ashes. We can be spared from experiencing this lake of fire or second death only because Jesus Christ suffered for us. Share with your study interests His fervent appeal. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Right? Merciful offer of salvation? Yeah. Babylon? All right, let's see if I got Babylon here. Now we're getting down to it. Babylon. Spiritual Babylon, as symbolized in Revelation, is called the mother of harlots. It refers not only to the medieval church, but also to the great body of Protestant churches that still cling to unbiblical beliefs and traditions. The adultery by which Babylon is characterized is an allusion to the church's unfaithfulness to Christ. When error and doctrinal confusion is promoted as truth, it is Christ who is rejected. When favor with the world is gained through compromise, compromise, it is Christ who is forsaken. And yet, infinite love will not be silenced. The voice of Christ can still be heard in the halls of Babylon, mercifully pleading for those He loves. Come out of her, my people. Those who know His voice will hear Him and will take their stand with Christ and His Word. Right? Is there any? Oh, you got one? Okay, this is the last one because I've got to keep going. Yes. <laughs> She's going back to the Old Testament. Okay, so that's not a typical topic in an evangelistic meeting, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Yes, yes, right. So um, let me just say, uh, give everyone a uh, suggestion. Read the Old Testament. Don't avoid it. You, many people avoid it because they don't know how to reconcile it with their concept of, of uh, justice and what have you. But when you read it, read Patriarchs and Prophets and Prophets and Kings with it. You will find that just about every case of a confusing uh, judgment that God gave in Old Testament times, there is a statement or paragraph that beautifully puts it in its proper context so that you understand you see, our problem is we often think, think we are more merciful than God. <laughs> I don't mean to... I'm just saying naturally. We read it and go, oh, I would have done it differently. You know? But we know that's not true. We know that God is more merciful, but the thing we don't know is what God knows. <laughs> we don't know the end from the beginning. We don't know what would happen in eternity if this didn't happen. We don't know any of that. So our best effort is just to try to reconcile some of those things with our understanding and these reading it in this way will help you'll begin to find that in some cases God had to bring swift judgment at a particular point in time because this person was perhaps beyond uh, the ability of help while as there were many masses that could have been uh, influenced if that hadn't happened for instance when Cain was allowed to continue and God would not allow him to be killed, you remember that the influence was that the daughters of Cain eventually mingled with the sons of Seth, and you have this wickedness grow until the flood came. It totally took out, the influence totally took out 
almost an entire humanity. And now you can see why there had to be in certain times swift judgment upon great groups of God's people or else that thing would have spoiled the whole batch. You understand? I mean, we look at it and, and, and we just don't see the larger picture, but we need to understand that, that God does. Okay, death. Christ alone has immortality and only those who receive Him can have the hope of eternal life. The dead are not currently in heaven, but are asleep in Christ awaiting the resurrection. Explain to your study interest the loving care of Jesus for those who have died and how He gave us the reason for His soon return that where I am, there you may be also. He will not assign this errand of love to anyone else, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven to resurrect His faithful followers. The risen Christ alone has the keys to death and the grave. Encourage your study interest to take hope in His promise. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's death. All right. Myth number two. People won't come out for three to four weeks. Uh, why am I calling that a myth? Because people will come out for three or four weeks. And because the whole thing is a, uh, how do I want to say? It's not taking in the whole picture. Like I had, I can think of one particular circumstance where uh, a group decided, eh, we're not going to do it, we're going to do it for nine nights from now on, or eight nights, or ten nights, or whatever, because people are not going to come out beyond a week or so, and so we're not going to do the longer versions of evangelistic meetings. Um, my particular thought that you're going to see throughout this presentation is that there are many people who will not come past that. So if they won't, what do you do? Well, you study with them later, right? Well, are there some who will? Yes. yes. So what if you do it only eight nights? Then you get the same people coming eight nights, but now you've got to study with all of them, and some of them would have kept coming. So the only reason that we don't go the longer period is because it's easier for us. I won't say that's the only reason, but in, to a great degree, that's the reason we don't want to extend it longer. The truth is, you're always going to have some who are not going to want to go for that period, but you're always going to have some who are. So as far as I'm concerned, and this is what actually happens, for those of you who have done evangelistic meetings, and you've, you've seen it happen, and the numbers trickle down, trickle down, and you get down to those 15 or 20 at the end, right? And, or depending on the size of your church, those three or four. And then... You get through three weeks or three and a half weeks or whatever it is, and I keep them going. Because the people who are still coming at that point would keep going, you know, until Jesus comes, just about. And, and you just keep going and keep providing something for them. We have follow-up meetings, do it a little fewer nights a week, and we just keep going and keep going until they're ready to be baptized. I mean, what happens is we weary because, you know, it's a lot and what have you, but the truth is there's no benefit. There's no plus side to shortening it. The same people who wouldn't come, uh, will you can work with in either case after the eight nights are over. But what extending it a little bit does is provides you an opportunity to keep people coming who will keep coming. So there's no downside. What's the downside? Can you give me one? I mean, like a downside. There's not really a downside. Okay, good. I'm glad I missed it. 
More work for us. That's not a downside. That's just, you know, that's not a downside evangelistically. That's a downside personally. Yes. Oh, so you're making my point. Amen, sister. Come on up and stand by me. Um, okay. How about this one? Prophecy meetings use scare tactics. How's that? Well, some people feel that pictures of beasts or what have you is trying to scare people into coming or what have you. Let me uh, let you in on something. If people are scared of the symbols that are actually used in the book of Revelation, they're already like they're scared by those symbols, then the reality is you have not added anything to them. But what we do, let me be clear, is we dispel people's fears. We bring them into the meeting and show them that's not a real beast. That's talking about a nation or a kingdom. Oh, right? I remember someone who uh, struggled to come with, to one of my evangelistic meetings in Onaway because they were scared. Husband was there, but she wouldn't come for about a week. He finally convinced her to come. And after she came, she was like, oh, this is such a blessing. I can't believe I was so afraid of Revelation. We actually dispel people's fears about Revelation. Did you hear what I said? So the next time someone says we're fear-mongering or scaring people, what do you tell them? We actually... Oh, you weren't listening. You said you were listening, but you weren't. We dispel people's fears, right? That's what we do. We show them what the Bible really means. It's not talking about these beasts being literal beasts. It's talking about something very, very different. Prophecy meetings don't reach young people. Uh, I'm, there was a recent survey done. I'm going to show you a little bit down at uh, Southern. I thought it was, uh, brought some excellent information out. In the survey, it talked about, or it surveyed 1,663 people, and they were all millennials, okay? Millennials meaning from the age of 18 to 34. And of those 1,663 that were surveyed, 20 of them actually entered the church through an evangelistic series. What does that, number one, tell you about the uh, millennials in the church? Where are they coming from, most of them? From families. Okay, so they have grown up Adventist. And they are, these are, uh, 94% of the, those surveyed were Adventists. So these are not millennials out in the community. These are Adventist millennials. Um, what do millennials think of Adventist public evangelism? The average overall impression of Adventist evangelistic meetings was neutral. It's from one to five you know, was the ranking, and 3.37 was the mean or the average. Millennials are not very likely to invite a friend to evangelistic meetings. 2.2 was from 1 to 5, where they landed on that, whether or not they would invite a friend. Uh, that means standard deviation. It has to do with the, the, um, the lowest and highest. and what the Top three descriptors of the messages preached at Adventist meetings are biblical, gospel-centered, and interesting. I thought that was really fascinating. You know, they don't want to, many of them, invite people to it, but they think they're biblical, gospel-centered, and interesting. 
Does that seem a little funny? Uh, which of these descriptors are accurate of the messages being preached at Adventist, Adventist evangelistic meetings on prophecy? Number one, 4.31 out of five, biblical. What do you think of that? Pretty fascinating. These are Adventist millennials. Uh, how do millennials perceive the Antichrist? The Antichrist is the false religious system of the Catholic Church. Two out of three believe that. How's two out of three sound to you? What if I said two out of three Adventists love Jesus? Would you be happy about it? Oh, praise the Lord. That's the majority. That's great. <clears throat> no, we want Adventists to like believe central components of Adventism. You remember that our message is the three angels' messages, right? You remember that the third angel is talking about a warning not to receive the mark of the beast. So you kind of like have to agree on who the beast is to know what the mark of the beast is in order to give that warning, right? Say so we're all together. So two out of three doesn't feel real good to me, especially when they gave such a high ranking on the fact that they're biblical. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me what we already know about many times when we have people who come in who, who are in the church but have not got to that point where they own it for themselves. You know? Like I remember being a, you know, a uh, young 20-something, and just before I had my conversion experience, um, I, my parents left the Adventist church when I was younger, and so I still claimed to be a Christian, but I really didn't know anything about the Bible, like I didn't know anything about the Bible, what it said, whatever, and I didn't know anything about religious Christian groups, really, so when people asked me what kind of Christian I was, I, I said Methodist. I'd never stepped foot into a Methodist church. I don't... Yeah, I just thought that was like the average sort of, you know what I'm talking about? You understand that many Adventist young people think just like that? Oh, yeah, it's biblical. But no, Antichrist, Catholic, you know, they don't know what they're speaking of. Do you understand? For this reason, let me just be clear about this. For this reason, we must be very careful about changing trajectory on Advent on evangelism, what have you, from surveys. Do you understand? Because we kind of have been told what we're supposed to preach. We were, we were kind of given that. And we are not really at liberty to take a poll and decide whether or not we want to do that or not. So we have to be cautious. Now, we, I'm all for surveys. I think this is a very valuable survey because it gives us insight. And we can know how to approach things but we have to be careful not to make more out of it than maybe we should because we have to be thinking about the situation and the type of uh, setting and the type of place in a person's life they might be when they're taking the survey. For instance, I've often heard it said, <laughs> another situation where a group decided they would gather a group together from the church and decide what, what kind of evangelism they wanted to do, and they all agreed anything but... 20 nights of a bunch of slides, you know, anything but that. And I was, somebody told me, yeah, we did a, a focus group and we decided that we were going to do something different because we didn't. I said, who was in your focus group? Were those Adventists or not? They were all Adventists. Mm -hmm. Adventists are the worst people to ask about evangelism. 
I'm serious. Because most of them have never done it. They've sat in it. They've watched it. They've criticized it. But they've never actually been soul winners. They've never had the process of taking someone through, of walking through Daniel with someone, of walking through it, of trying to bring them to decisions. They don't really recognize or understand the process. And so they're quick to just kind of, what if we did this? What if we did this? And they hate things that we've been doing because they're tired of it. Now, they could see, oh, 2,300 days, oh, and their head, you know, eyes roll back in their head with boredom. But then you ask him, oh, since Billy is so bored, we're going to bring him up here and let him explain it to you tonight. And suddenly Billy would step up and realize that his boredom is not from his superior knowledge. Right? And this is something we've got to get through our heads. It has to do with our hearts. And we are reaching people who are reached differently than maybe how we may feel about it as Adventists. And so I immediately told them, you know, that's the wrong person to do the focus group with. There's a reason. If you send out a handbill, for instance, an advertisement that advertises the exact same thing that any other local church would in terms of, uh, you know, the steps of salvation or something like that, you will get lower attendance than advertising something that their churches are not able to explain. You understand what I'm saying? They're, they're, that's why we do that, is they're interested in it, and because it is perfectly calculated to grip the heart. I wonder if my brother has the quote ready that I asked him to get ready. This is a test. He does? Oh, and he's got his microphone. So I, when I got up here, I said, oh man, I meant to put this in my slides, and I didn't get it in my slides in time. Can you have this ready? I want you to hear this quote that Pastor Howard is going to read to you right now because of how powerful it is. Yeah, I, I had the quote ready. I just didn't know if he'd ever stop talking. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Whatever. I'm just teasing him. Okay, okay never mind. this I'm is move from. On to the uh, next slide. <laughs> this is from Manuscript Releases, Volume 19, page 41. It says, The light that Christ revealed. That's the one you're. Yes. Yeah. Amen. The light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet. You'll see in a minute she's talking about John the Revelator. Is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. In it are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in the last days and against the mark of the beast. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Hold on. Did you hear that? By presenting these things, we shall be able to what? What was the word? Stir, Stir the people. See? Amen. That's what we want. We want to be, have a message that actually... Because this day and age, it, that's the difficulty. How do you stir people out of the incredible lethargy that exists in this culture? I mean, it's incredible. But our message, the one that God gave is not ours. He gave it in Revelation 14. He showed that that was the message that has to go to the world before Jesus comes. That message actually is calculated to stir people and to arouse an interest. But there's some, something more to it. Okay, keep reading. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. Whoa, did you catch that? You didn't catch it. I got it. The ministers 
of other denominations, the apparently, the subjects that the ministers of other denominations dwell on, will not stir the people. No. So what are we doing if we say, you know what, let's do a different message that's, you know, going to be uh, a little different for the saints, you know, and, and, and make sure that we have a message that makes us not look quite so alarmist. And let's do that. And yet that very thing is what she says will not move the people. And that's why she gives this incredible warning at the end. Go ahead, Pastor Mark. We must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. Wow. Uh, manuscript releases 19. What's page, page 41. Number? 41. That's the only place you'll find it, too. Incredible. So, we have a message that's able to stir the people. That's the good news, right? And uh, so we need to make sure that the message of the three angels... And the context of our prophetic message is always there, even when we're talking about things such as the Sabbath. I mean, Ellen White even says, you separate the Sabbath from the three angels' messages, and the Sabbath loses its power. You separate it from, from the end-time nature, the, the final test for humanity and what have you, it loses its power. It no longer stirs the people as it would when connected with the three angels. Incredible. Okay, I'm going to skip past this stuff, and I'm going to go here. Another myth. Matthew 25 is, oh, wait, 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 I don't want to go yet. Prophecy meetings don't reach young people. Let me say something about that. One more thing. It is very true that advertising into the community with flyers is not bringing a bunch of young people to our meeting. Okay? It's not, yeah, but let's be clear, right. There's not, it's not like that's different from others. The way to get them to our meetings is through personal labor, letting our young people minister to young people and, and encouraging them. Because here's the thing, it's not that the message preached at the prophecy meeting does not reach young people. I have had many young people at my meetings and it reaches young people. It's getting them to the meeting that is the challenge. So the idea that prophecy meetings don't reach young people is ridiculous. Like now we're going to give a different message to the young people? No, no. We're going to create a different thing than a Seventh-day Adventist. We want to make sure they understand it because it's powerful. I mean, do we believe that the message is powerful or not? That's the thing that bothers me. I'll cut right to the chase. The thing that bothers me is that our efforts at evangelism always seem to be stealing from the message when the message is the thing that has the power to reach the people. If your method starts taking the message out of the picture, then it's not so hot. There may be different formats and ways to share the message. That's fine. But the message itself is the only thing that has the power to stir the people, including young people. But we do need to do a better job of enlisting our young people to reach out personally to bring other young people into settings where the Word of God is preached. Now, Matthew 25 is true evangelism. You know what Matthew 25, where, it taught, where Jesus uh, talks about how when we visit in prison, we visit Him. When we feed someone who's hungry, we feed Him, etc. And it's a direct connection with the judgment in that. And so many people believe that the Matthew 25 picture of a Christian is true evangelism. It's not. 
It's true Christianity, but it's not evangelism. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, there are a lot of things that we do as Christians that, yes, they have as their purpose. I mean, you might call it the part of the first phase of evangelism if you are ministering to someone, but ultimately, this is not the sum total of evangelism and never could be because evangelism is about reaching someone with the gospel, and the gospel comes from the Word of God, and you can't have, you know, just from Matthew 25, evangelism. And this is one of the greatest issues that we're dealing with right now. Christ's method, some people will say, is ministering to physical needs. You ever remember that statement where Ellen White says, Christ's method alone is able to uh, reach hearts, is success, will bring us success in reaching to people? And then she talks about how we need to sympathize with people, we need to mingle with people, we need to sympathize with them, and then ultimately win their confidence and bid them follow me, right? And so I remember being in a place where uh, evangelism in terms of public evangelism, what have you, was greatly discouraged. But this quote of Christ's method alone was continually uh, trumpeted because the idea is that Christ's method alone is talking about ministering to people's needs, and that's what true evangelism is. Remember the grow cycle I showed you in the very beginning? So what is ministering to people's needs? Yes, but give it to me. And What is soil preparation? It is a phase of evangelism. This is what's happening, you guys. People are taking one phase of evangelism, calling it evangelism, and, and substituting the rest of the phases. And that's a big, big problem. I mean, here in North America, we have a wonderful ministry uh, where the, the division is focusing on compassionate service. That's fantastic, as long as you see compassionate service as a, what was it? Phase of evangelism. But if you see it as evangelism, if you see Christ's method as ministering to people's needs, and that is evangelism, then you are going to fall far short of growing your church. Why would someone want to do that? I'll tell you a couple reasons. One reason is because there is, a, there is not much of a criticism when you're helping people. When you're ministering to people's needs, there's no one who's going to argue with that. It just expresses love. Right? And we should. But sharing the message uh, makes us a little crazy. You know? Having to explain things about what's going to happen at the end of time and the mark of the beast and what have you, that puts you, and the Sabbath, that makes you different. And it highlights our differences and it's challenging for people. That's the truth, is that for many people, they don't like the idea of highlighting those differences and therefore they focus on the first phase of evangelism and call that the most important part and actually the sum total of evangelism. But that is not the sum total of evangelism. I want to show you this quote. From Christ's method, you know that Christ's method alone quote? That's not the only place she talks about Christ's method. Evangelism 123, from Christ's methods of labor, we may learn many valuable lessons. He did not follow merely one method. In various ways, he sought to do what? Okay, what part of the evangelism process is gaining the attention? It's the very first part, right? Which we refer to as preparing the soil. Okay, right? That's, so how many ways are there to prepare the soil? Give me some. 
Health message? Literature. Okay, literature might get into planting, but supper club, which is partially health ministry. Give me some personal ways that you prepare this. Community service? Making friends with people? Mowing your neighbor's lawn? Uh, women in the driver's seat. Oh, yeah, somebody who remembers that program. Pastor Bill. Women in the driver's seat, where you teach women how to change their oil and whatever. It's a wonderful program. These are relationship-building things to get their attention, okay? Various different ways. Uh, you know, you, some of our campus group goes onto a campground and they'll set up a couch and have free massages or whatever. I mean, there's all sorts of things. Various ways to gain the attention of the multitude. And then, he proclaimed to them the truths of the gospel. It doesn't say, in various ways he sought to gain the attention of the multitude. And then in various ways, he sought to lead them to heaven. No, once he got their attention, which happens in, you know, the, the avenue to someone's interest, there's a thousand avenues to people's interest. But once you get the interest, the, the method is essentially always the same. They need to hear the gospel. Right? So when we talk about Christ's method, let's be clear. The heart of evangelism is the gospel. Right? This gospel, gospel shall be preached in all the world and then the end will come. It doesn't say, you know, people's needs will be ministered to across the world, and then the end will come. No, that is how we reach the heart so that they're open to the gospel seed. But the heart of evangelism is the gospel. Do you know how I know that? Because 1 Peter 1.23, one of my very favorite verses in all the Bible, if, you, uh, are, you know, if you've been lazy this whole time, just sitting there watching me, you're nodding off, several of you, let's look at 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23. Go ahead and look at it in your own Bible. That's what I want. I want you to look at 1 Peter 1.23. And I want somebody to tell me, as you read in that passage, I want somebody to tell me how someone is born into the kingdom of God. What does it say? We're born, have been born again, not a corruptible seed, incorruptible, through the word of God. It lives and abides forever. Brothers and sisters, the entrance into the kingdom of God, the born-again experience happens when the creative power of the Word opens up the mind and, and, and somebody has an encounter with Jesus Christ, their Savior. That's how it happens. You can reach people's hearts and gain their confidence through your own personal loving ministry, but you're not trying to connect them to yourself. You're trying to connect them to Christ. And so Adventist evangelism has always had at its heart the preaching of the message because the message is how people are born again, how they receive a new heart from Christ. And we can't ever leave it off. This is why I recently read, somebody said, I'm sorry, I only have four minutes probably. Oh, I have lots of time. Who's, uh, are you, do you have the 3.30? You He's next, so I have plenty of time. I'm just going to <laughs> We grow th churches through kindness. That's what somebody I recently read said, that they had a new church plant, and they were growing, and what have you, and the way that they were growing was through intentional acts of kindness. 
Brothers and sisters, you don't grow any church through intentional acts of kindness. You might make lots of friends through intentional acts of kindness. You might open people up to sharing the truth through intentional acts of kindness. And I'm all for intentional acts of kindness. But let me tell you something. Nobody ever grew a church with intentional acts of kindness unless they baptized them without knowing the gospel. Amen. You understand? I mean, they might get a little more attendance, but they're not going to grow the church, actually grow the church, until they surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept Him as personal Savior and are willing to follow the truth. This, this is, I mean, to even say it, it's like we grew it through intentional acts of kindness. Maybe they did study the Bible with them afterwards. Maybe not. I don't know. But the whole emphasis they're trying to do is that this is the focus. That the message, the message just gets buried down here somewhere. Like it's, you know, almost selfish for us to try to share our view with other people. Like they have to think like we do in order to be real Christians. This is a real problem. At the end of time, people need to believe the truth or they're at risk of losing their salvation. Those even who are with the Lord. Flyers are too expensive and ineffective. I'm going to deal with this by just saying, no, they're not. Um, I'll add one more thought. We're dealing with percentages here. Okay? Uh, I knew every year that when I sent out flyers that I would get my, you know, one per thousand. And I, for one, was absolutely thrilled to get 40 interests. People say, oh, I'm not going to do flyers because that's... Okay, well, where are your interests? How are you finding your interests? They don't have interests. So we're not going to spend the money because it seems like a lot of money for so few people. If you have a better way of finding people who are wistfully looking toward heaven, then a cheaper way, then do it. But if you don't and you do nothing, you're accountable to God. Amen. That's We've got to do whatever we know to do. Amen. And this works. It still works. It works all the time. It may not work as well as we wish it worked. And for, I was very grateful when we did Unlock Revelation that I did a lot of internet advertising and I got great results from that. So we'll keep doing internet advertising as, it, as we can. But brothers and sisters, whatever we have to do to get interest, we need to do. Because that's what we're called to do. Some people believe that outreach causes us to neglect nurture. I want to make sure you understand something. It is possible for people to be so focused on baptisms that after people are baptized, they just leave people and they just keep doing whatever. That's an actual problem in the church. Yeah. Having said that, the idea that evangelistic outreach needs to be tapered back in order to focus on nurture is crazy. And the reason is because the way that you nurture someone and keep them in the church is by getting them engaged in evangelistic outreach. If you're not taking time to do that, then that's problematic. Ellen White says in Christian Service, page 69, let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them. The burden of leading souls into the truth. In order to grow in spirituality, that's nurture, right? You're nurturing people. You're helping them to grow. In order for them to grow, they must carry the burden of leading souls into the truth. We've got to get our new people involved and all our church members involved in evangelistic outreach. That is the heart, the, the best aspect of nurture. Not the only one, but a very, very important one. Some people say we should do personal ministry and just stop doing public ministry. Do you know why they say that? 
because personal is very effective. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I would rather we do personal ministry, uh, just personal ministry, than just public ministry. Ellen White actually says as much. She says, if we could have but one part done, let it be the individual labor of entering into homes and sharing people the themes of redemption. Personal Bible studies, personal ministry. However, if you want to ask me how you really do it, you follow this divine counsel. Evangelism, page 313. When both are combined, she's talking about extensive meetings, like public, big and public meetings, and personal effort, with the blessing of God, a more perfect and thorough work may be wrought. So what's the best avenue? Both. Whenever you hear people talking about evangelism, they've got their ideas. What always ends up happening is either or. Either or. Public evangelism, compassionate service. Personal, public. Flyers, no flyers. I always say both, both, both. I mean, what are we doing? It, there's, there's something underneath it all that we need to be evaluating. These are phases of the same process and they are all essential. Some people say our evangelism is about just getting numbers. Let me tell you, there is a problem that we have with not preparing people for baptism because we want numbers. Ellen White says, Great care should be exercised in accepting members into the church, for Satan has his specious devices through which he purposes to crowd false brethren into the church, through whom he can, more, uh, he can work more successfully to weaken the cause of God. You know that the devil is trying to crowd false brethren into the church? So those people who say, let's baptize everybody, that's not good evangelism. We need to make sure that they feel good about their decision and they are in harmony with the Seventh-day Adventist Church and then it's a win-win for both sides. And what our goal should be is not just numbers, and it never has been. Those who say it's just numbers, they don't like when we talk about numbers, but you know, how many were baptized in, in uh, Acts chapter 2? It says they, they added how many? How do we know? Because somebody counted it. Right? I mean, brothers and sisters, it's not wrong to count. Jesus said we're to go and baptize. We need to get as many as possible. In other words, do we have to minimize the importance of baptism to maximize the importance of discipleship after baptism? I mean, I don't understand us. We've got to do it all and never minimize one in order to highlight another. There's usually a, a hidden motive behind that. And we need to be very careful. Some people just say, witnessing is not my spiritual gift. Christian service says that the Lord calls for pardoned souls who rejoice in the light to make known the truth to others. Every disciple of Christ is called to be a fisher of men. Go through the list of spiritual gifts and you will not find witnessing in them because witnessing is something that God calls on everyone to do. We may do it slightly differently. We may have different uh, modes and methods, but we have to find an outlet for leading souls into the truth. That's what God has placed on every one of us. Our evangelism is information-based instead of relationship-based. This is somebody who doesn't do evangelism. <laughs> I mean, have you ever given a Bible study? I mean, the people you give a Bible study to are like tied to you for life. I mean, you're talking about such a close bond that nothing else could be. People say, oh, I do random acts of kindness and build relationships. Well, I do intentional Bible studies once a week. 
And when you do that, and you spend an hour with something every, every week, there's nothing that communicates love quite like the sacrifice of a person's time. I can't tell you how many people have said, boy, I can't believe you're doing this for me. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. I really like this kind of thing. They're like, oh, I, I just can't believe you take all this time out of whatever. I mean, it expresses love like nothing else. You want to build relationships? Do evangelism. Give Bible studies to someone. Go to an evangelistic meeting. Sit next to someone. Night after night after night, you'll build a relationship. This whole idea of information versus relationship is a way to try to get rid of the information because many people, here's the bottom line, do not believe in our message anymore. They're embarrassed by our message. They're ashamed about the idea of the remnant. They're ashamed about the spirit of prophecy. They're ashamed about Christian Adventist lifestyle. And because of it, they want us to tone it all down and instead focus on compassion. Brothers and sisters, you can focus on compassion and give our message, and God help us if we don't do both. And finally, evangelism advertising uses bait and switch. Let me just uh, finish on this thought. In, I'm not going to go to the text. I'm just going to share it to you uh, from memory because I'm out of time. In Daniel chapter 8, the Bible says that there would be a sinister power that would cast truth down to the ground Okay, during the Middle Ages. And right after saying that this sinister power would cast truth down to the ground, a question is asked, how long will the vision be? And then it describes this vision of the 2300 days and especially the last part where there's all this stuff going on by this sinister power, including the casting of truth down to the ground, if you read in verse 12. And then the answer comes, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So the truth is cast to the ground, and it would begin to be restored at the end of the 2,300 days. When is the end of the 2,300 days? 1844. What are the truths that were cast to the ground? Well, during the Dark Ages, you had this idea of, you know, saint praying to saints and everything. And so you have this idea of the, the immortality of the soul. You have purgatory and wrong ideas of an ever-burning hell. You have the idea of the priesthood and, and, you know, praying to a priest instead of to God. You have this counter-reformation idea of a secret rapture. These are all errors that we correct in our evangelistic meetings, Right? So when the Bible says that the truth will be cast to the ground, but it would begin to be restored in 1844, what began? What rose up in 1844? The Seventh-day Adventist Church began its birthing. And this church was raised up for the very purpose of casting down error and restoring the truth. This is why... In the three angels' messages, right after the first angel's message, and it comes to the second, it says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. What's Babylon? That's the great system of error and confusion. How is Babylon falling? Because the truth is being restored. Brothers and sisters, when we preach about death in an evangelistic meeting, we are preaching prophecy. Because we're fulfilling prophecy before their eyes. When we advertise prophecy and then preach about death or hell or anything like that that may have been, or, or even the priesthood of Christ, if we talk about any of that, we are actually restoring the truth that was 
lost during the dark ages in fulfillment of Daniel 8.14 that said, Under 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. We are not only not bait and switching, we're actually fulfilling prophecy when we preach that. The problem is our friends don't understand what prophecy is. They think it's talking about the Middle East and the Euphrates River and all this stuff, so they feel like that's not it. But our doctrines are actually being preached as a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And this is why we can never say we're bait and switch. So I'm going to skip to, uh, I had a quiz for you at the end, but instead I'm going to go back here. You see that? If you just believe that, a lot will be answered. Compassion service does not replace sharing the truth. Public evangelism is important, but it's not the only thing. Discipleship after baptism is vital, right? When you understand this, you understand it's actually overthrowing a lot of false ideas about evangelism that are being cast around in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So by the grace of God, let's grow Michigan and let's do it the Adventist evangelism way. I haven't, but maybe there's something new starting. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time we've had together. We pray that as we consider how to reach the world, that we will always remember the simple principles you've given us in the Bible and spirit of prophecy. Help us, Lord, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not to do compassionate service or public evangelism, not to do personal or public, not to focus on baptisms or what happens after baptism. Help us to do all of it by the grace of God to our best ability and by your grace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.